Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. And welcome back to Dungeon Deep Dive. Every week we uh, do a deep dive on specific aspects of your fantasy worlds uh, for Dungeons & Dragons or fantasy writing. Uh, with me are my fabulous co-hosts, uh, over, up, up North Ways. <laughs> <laughs> up North Ways, yeah. Hi, it's me. I'm Grace Shadell, and I'm uh, about 18 suburbs away from everyone else. That's so specific. And then down west, westward, southward. I can't Southwest. remember where you are. Uh, southward. I'll be honest. I don't know where I am either. I'm somewhere, but I'm Lachlan. Hello. And uh, in case you hadn't guessed, this is our first attempt at doing this all by correspondence. Uh, we are all in different houses, uh, trying to do a recording together. So we'll see how this goes. And uh, thank you for sticking with us, our lovely listeners. Uh, now, if you do have any feedback, if you've got some suggestions, if you've got things you want to talk to us about, please feel free to contact us on our socials. We are at Dungeon Deep Dive on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can reach out to us via email at deepdivetnc at gmail.com. And before we get started, uh, we'd just like to acknowledge that we are recording on the tradi- traditional lands of the Turrbal and Yagara people. Uh, and we'd like to acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded. Uh, these pl- places have always been places of teaching and learning and storytelling. And in a way, we're continuing in that tradition. But if you are a... Uh, we'd like to pay respects to elders past, present and emerging. And if you would like to have a voice on this podcast, we would love to have you. Um, please get in contact. We'd love to have you here. Yeah. And so, with that, this week, everybody, as... Uh, you've no doubt guessed from, I suppose, the title. We make it such a big thing every time, but it's really just in the title of the episode, isn't it? Uh, you probably already know that this episode... Yeah, you kind of know before you get into it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's pretty, we're pretty transparent up front. Uh, but we are talking about textiles. Yeah, look, I'm going to be real. If you guys aren't reading the descriptions, I put a lot of effort into puns for absolutely no reason. I'll be really upset. (laughs) Yeah, please write in via email and validate us, because uh, we spend a lot of work on the uh, the show notes. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, yeah. So, talking about textiles, um, I might start us off. Uh, what I was d- looking into was actually a little bit tangential, but very relevant to textiles, uh, is dyeing. Uh, it's the process of dyeing textiles, because without that, Everything's a lovely uh, off-white to brown. Um, that's about the color, color range we have. 
So talking about dyeing is just a nice way to add a little bit of color to your worlds. And I wanted to talk a little bit, it's kind of scattershot, but about the different processes that we go through. So the first thing I need to talk about is types of dyes. Now there are a couple of different methods, but the main ones that you will find in uh, traditional methods and in uh, historical methods are two types. There's direct dyes and adjective dyes. So direct dyes are the ones that most people will use these these days. They're the more recent of the two. Um, and you'll actually know these uh, from a lot of home dyeing if you've ever been into DIY. Uh, but these are dyes like indigo, uh, any dyes made of lichen. Um, if you've ever dyed a shirt with cabbage uh, or with an avocado pit, um, these are what's called uh, substantive, so direct dyes. So they use a process called substantive dyeing. And all that means is that those dyes are water soluble and will directly bind to cellulose. So they don't need any other agents. They will just bind to that directly. And then you don't need to worry about them leaching out too badly. They will stick. Huh. I mean, um, I also, now the other type of, I, I also have a tendency to bind to cellulose and wish to substantively die. So clearly we've got a lot in common. <laughs> Do you get it? Just I mean, get it? clearly. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, <laughs> God damn it. Um, so the second style of dyeing is uh, a little more, it's, it's a multi-stage process and it was mostly discovered purely by trial and error. Uh, but this is actually what most historical dyes were uh, and they're called adjective dyes. So this is a project called Mordant Dyeing. And the reason for that is that um, when you actually use these sorts of dyes, uh, what you'll have to do is you'll soak your uh, cloth in with the specific dye that you're using, and then you'll add what's called a mordant, which is mostly, it's a particular chemical that helps bind the dye to the, to the uh, fabric. So dyes like this, one of the most famous is cochineal. Uh, if anyone's heard of that, it's a bright red dye made of bugs, mm. made of cochineal bugs. Oh, um, is that the, the so, beetle one? Yeah, so they're, they're tiny beetles. Um, so if you know the redcoats, uh, all all of their jackets were dyed using cochineal dye. Oh. And cochineal, depending on how you treat it, will be anywhere from a bright red through to a deep crimson. Yeah, you can make... Um, sometimes um, even as dark as a maroon. You can make, uh, like, oil paints and stuff out of it too. Yeah. Um, now, you do need a lot of the bugs. Uh, the bugs are actually dried out t until they're about 30% of their original body weight, and it takes about 10,000 beetles to make one kilogram of dye. To be fair, a kilogram of dye goes a long way. Yeah, I, but that seems pretty... It's still a lot of insects. Yeah, I mean, 10,000 anything is difficult to come by, but I feel like for a kilogram, I mean, that's hefty. Because how much actual dye how much like dyeing would you be able to do with a kilogram of dye because i imagine that's like a pretty fucking substantial um it doesn't have anything specific on here um i can give you an idea of the current cost of it though please so as of well as of 2005 so we are f 15 years ago but as of 2005 the market price of cochineal was between 50 and 80 us dollars per kilogram that's not as expensive as I thought. Uh, so, no, it's not too bad. Uh, it's about 
five times the value of most comparable synthetic dyes. Most synthetic dyes aren't made of beetle, though, so I think it's worth the money. Exactly. Um, and so the idea behind these is you'll add the dye, you'll let it soak into the fabric, and then you'll have to add your mordant, which will help bind it to the fabric. So the mordant these days, uh, most of the time, they will use a chemical called alum uh, because they have to use a lot of uh, metallic salts. So alum is fairly common these days, but back in the day, uh, historical mordants would include vinegar, uh, tannin, sumac, um, ammonia, which was derived from stale urine, and Ooh. potash, which is essentially ash. It's a specific type of ash. I know what potash is, Tully. We're all familiar with potash. <laughs> I think we have talked about it a couple times on the on the show, actually. Potash. Oh, I was just making a weed joke. Um, so yeah, essentially, your main processes... So essentially, those are our two different styles. So if you want to make your dyeing processes feel interesting in your games, definitely I would recommend adjective dyeing, um, looking at mordant dyeing, because you get to have that two-stage process and you get to add all sorts of funky chemicals. Uh, it's really fun. And it's now, more historically to... accurate, right? Because you said that one was the fir- that was like the earlier form yeah, of Yeah, they're the older ones. Yeah. Yeah, so direct dyes sort of, for the most part, they started phasing out adjective dyeing wherever direct dyes started being developed. That makes sense. I guess it's just a matter of, like, access to resources and then ability to, like, test those resources to see what they're made up of. Because if you knew that you needed two chemicals and then you could, like, analyse an avocado pit in a part of the world where you wouldn't normally get that, you could just be like, fuck it, this is easier to get pink than a shit ton of beetles. Yeah, exactly. Um, now, there has actually been recently a bit of a, a drive in certain circles to rediscover a lot of natural dyeing methods, which has meant that some mordant dyes are coming back. Uh, one perfect exa- perfect example uh, is there is a particular uh, dye, I guess manufacturer, but I would rather say artisan, um, and his name is, I've got it here, uh, is Sachio Yoshioka, uh, and I'm going to include a video, uh, about an 18-minute documentary on his work uh, in the show notes. Okay. But essentially, he is trying to revive uh, some ancient Japanese um, plant-based dyes. So I'm going to just walk us through the process that it takes to get uh, Benny dye, which is a, a deep red color, from uh, safflower petals. Okay, sounds good. And so safflower petals, uh, safflower is a particular flower that was used as a saffron alternative uh, by... A couple of different countries when saffron was in short supply, like always. And uh, a lot of New Mexican cuisine actually calls for safflower specifically because they developed a use of this rather than saffron. Oh, so not just in a dyeing context, like in every, like everything that you would use saffron for, you would use this for instead. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So they used it um, in food. They actually started to develop. Um, it, it, actually, if you go looking for it, uh, if you check out the Wikipedia article for safflower, dyeing is not mentioned. Huh. It's actually not a major use of it um, because 
that sort of method has been lost. So um, this particular artist and uh, Yoshi, hang on. yeah, uh, Sachio Yoshioka, he studied a whole bunch of texts to bring back these methods. So this has been his life's work is to bring this back in. Oh, highly wow. recommend checking out the video. It'll be in the show notes. Um, but to run you through the process, uh, you get these petals. So let's say we are creating enough dye for one sheet of paper for a traditional ceremony. Uh, it is an annual Buddhist ceremony held at the Tadaiji Temple in Nara uh, that requires a lot of uh, red paper squares. And for one sheet of paper, which would be around about, I, I think it looks like about a foot squared, uh, you need 1.5 kilos of dried petals. Uh, so it's a lot of petals to get this dye. Um, now, the first thing they'll do, they'll soak them all in water and press them to release a yellow colorant. Uh, that yellow colorant is just discarded. It's not the main reason that they use it. Um, quite potentially, you could use it, but it's not what they get it for. Wait. Now, that here's an interesting why point. Why just... not make use of it, though? Like, if you're getting all of this yellow dye out well, of the flowers already. Um, so, it, from what I found, it didn't go into it. Now, this is pretty personal methods that have been shown in this documentary, so there's not much actually documented. Um, oh, okay. I would assume you could use this, and uh, this is actually... That's actually a good point, though. If you are incorporating this into your games, into you know making dyes you could potentially get multiple colors out of uh, specific dyes, um, specific materials. So for this, if you soak them in cold water, that absorbs, uh, that, that takes out all of the yellow colorant. And so in this particular thing, they discard that, but you could use that. Um, then they add vinegar to this. So then they add alkali, which is... Um, in this case, they use potash, um, and that releases the the red colorant from the petals. Um, it happens a couple of different times to make sure that they get all of the color, all of the red color, out of the petals. Then they add our mordant, which is vinegar. So that's added to lower the pH and to bind that to the uh, to the cloth. Uh, they'll put a bunch of strips of linen in there. Then they will repeat that process. They will add alkali again to get it out of the linen. And I, I assume this is just a refining process. Pour it through a silk cloth uh, with a particular uh, dried plum extract, which is a precipitant, causes it to precipitate through this silk. And you, what you end up with is uh, this mud-like, really fine mud-like dye that you can scrape off and paint onto your... Um, your paper or your cloth. And so in this case, it is painted on. Huh. Um, and it, it soaks in. That's really interesting, especially considering they do let it soak into cloth first. I think it's really interesting. I wonder what the... Um, yeah. What the specifics of, like... Do you know why they would paint it instead of soaking it again? I would assume it's because to get the specific deep red that they want, um, it is. it has to be well-refined... And I would say that it's more about the specificity of the hue, uh, being able to paint it on uh, like this. Um, the documentary does actually detail a little bit of a process for creating a specific uh, group of purples from a, 
from a plant that is uh, endangered. And it doesn't go into too many of the scientific specifics, but if you watch it, you can see the care and attention going into specific processes and making sure they get the specific uh, hues out of this purple. I, again, I could not recommend this enough. Uh, it's from the YouTube channel of the Victoria and Albert Museum. And the video is called... Uh, you linked it. In Search of Forgotten Colors. You linked it, and I actually started watching it while I was waiting for our chat to get set up, and it is very beautiful. It's like a gorgeously shot little documentary. Hmm. I might have to it is it so pretty, and even if you just want... Yeah, even if you just want background video to watch, it is so pretty, and uh, it most of it is unspoken. It's just captioned. Would highly recommend. Hmm. Oh, sorry. I just wanted to clarify so that I didn't sound like an idiot in the recording. I did realize that um, if you're dealing with paper, you probably can't just chuck paper in some dye. That does make sense. Because then you wouldn't... Yeah, then you just wouldn't have paper anymore. So I just wanted... Before we got any iTunes reviews no, being No, you just like, have a pile of cellulose. This Lachlan guy's a dumbass. I worked it out. It's fine. <laughs> but also, um, you... People have been known to paint dyes onto fabrics. That is... a a thing that happens. Um, and I guess it's just up to the specificity of colour that you want. Yeah. Now, there are two interesting rabbit holes that I kind of wanted to throw out for people. Um, not, I don't have too much on them, but I just wanted to give you this. So the first is called resist dyeing. So believe it or not, you will have seen resist dyeing happen. It's actually a really common process. Um, and basically all it is is a way of patterned, patterning uh, dyeing so that certain areas of fabric aren't affected by certain stages of the, of the dye. Okay. Now, the reason you will have seen it is because tie dyeing is a form of resist dyeing. Yeah, I was just about to say, that sounds kind of like tie dye. Um, I can't remember... It is actually... Yeah, it is a form of resist dye. I can't dyeing. remember who does it, but there's like a specific... There's somebody who does it by painting um, wax onto fabric and then they dye the fabric and then the wax washes off afterwards. I don't know who it is, though, that does that. Ooh. Aha. That is... Well, this is uh, an Indonesian technique called batik. Um, so they will wax resist dye a whole cloth. So they will uh, dye it a certain color, a base color, and then they will draw lines and dots and create these patterns on it using wax. And then they'll print the rest. And then they'll um, dye the rest. And they'll selectively coat, soak bits and pieces in certain colours. But, um, yeah, it's pretty much exactly that. They will add wax to the areas that they don't want dyed. Uh, they will dye it. They will use boiling water to remove the wax. And then if they want to add more colours, they will do it again. Huh, that's really cool. Yeah, so if you've ever seen the Indonesian uh, batik designs... Most of them are based off that process, uh, even if they're no longer using, using that actual process. That's where the art mm. style comes from. Yes, yeah, so that's a form of resist dyeing. Um, and the other one that I have is walnuts. Now, uh, I, I, pitched these to, I pitched this to these two beforehand, and they, they informed me that I was making no sense. So uh... I don't understand how the walnuts... <laughs> Do it. The way you explained it, it sounded like the walnuts physically did the dyeing themselves with their little walnut arms. Yeah, like this was a walnut, like, 
<laughs> endeavor. They were they went out on their own initiative to like make some t-shirts or something. Fucking the Walnuts are setting up like for a their startup. I don't know what you're talking about, Tully. <laughs> um, so this is an idea for how staining can happen naturally. Uh, essentially, black walnuts specifically. There's a, a a species of walnut called the black walnut, and their seeds contain or the the nuts contain a specific set of dyes. So there's one called juglone, one called uh, plumbogen, and then they also contain tannin. Now, what this means is that within a walnut, there is a brown dye, a yellow dye, and then the tannin helps serve as a mordant, which means that if it sits for too long, it will permanently dye anything it lands on. Uh, it has been known to stain cars, sidewalks, benches, patios, uh, and ha- the hands of people trying to shell them. Um, there's a great photo of, if- here of a guy's hands, and they're after shelling walnuts, and they're just black. And you can see That's his wrists, ridiculous. like his arms are white, his hands are black. Ah. So it's just the nut itself on the inside? Um, it's... It's contained in the shells. The dye is? Yeah, so the the dye is contained in the shells. I believe the yellow dye is also contained in the nuts. Um, But the outer shells, even though the outer skin of the nut can be anywhere from green to black, it has all of those uh, chemicals present. Interesting. So they're just like, walnuts are just fucking with you. Pretty much. If you touch a walnut, yeah, it's just going to mess up your day if you don't wash your hands instantly. Yeah, so um, I and I bring that up in a, as an example because it shows that these dyes and these dyeing processes can occur naturally and do. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, but that's, that's basically what I have on dyeing. Um, just a way of saying, hey, here's how you can colour your cloth. Yeah, and I mean, it's important to know, because I don't think there's been anyone that's made cloth ever that hasn't dyed it in some way. Like, it's just yeah, it's I such think... a constant. If you make fabric, you colour fabric. Yeah. Yeah, in some way or another. Um, for Anywhere as simple as using red dirt um, all the way up to cochineal. Yeah. Hmm. Everyone just wants to look good. Yeah. Exactly. Anyway, that's all I've got. Um, I might hand over to... The lovely Grace over here. Me. Yes. Um, I didn't go quite as broad as dying. I thought, how about I, like, get hyper-specific. So I'm looking at sea silk, which is a very particular way of making a fabric that there's about 12 women in the world who know how to do it at the moment. Um, so sea silk. Silk is um, an incredibly rare fabric that's made from these long filaments from a gland in the pen shell. This this is the only pen shell that'll do it. It's a particular type of like mollusk that grows in the Mediterranean. And these filaments are essentially like secretions that then harden into like long strands of hair that they use to like hold on to the seafloor. Like they wrap around rocks and stuff and they like set so basically these shells can be up to a meter long and the filaments can be up to six centimeters long so that's a this is a big shell um and 
they are that's a small yeah, filament small filament big shell um it takes oh i wrote it down it takes 300 to 400 dives because they have to like dive down every day and hand scrape this filament off because they used to just grab the shells and people would eat them and they'd use them but they're now um, incredibly endangered and you're not allowed to take them out of the water so these 12 women uh, are actually accompanied by the coast guard and every couple of days they go down they go diving and they scrape all these filaments off these shells and it takes about 300 to 400 dives to gather 200 grams so it takes Jesus. an incredibly long time that's such a fucking investment yeah yeah um, it would be um, cheaper and easier to weave actual gold yeah oh by far yeah um so basically this was this was it wasn't well known it was always like incredibly specific to this area and to this like particular handful of um islands in the mediterranean um but up until the early 20th century it was very popular um and it made a like a very lightweight soft fabric like obviously these are so fine i think the um i think they're like three times finer than a human hair um, so very soft. Whoa. Yeah. Um, and that's Jeez. like human hair is like that. Like that's yeah. what we use linguistically to talk about the finest possible thing. Yeah. Um. So this is that's th- like yeah. three times thinner each individual strand. Um, and they're six centimeters long. So that's you want to make anything substantial. That's a lot of stuff you got to collect. Um, but basically, I mean, even you... creating the initial threads out of six centimeter filaments mm-hmm. is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Um, so once you've collected oh. all of your filaments and you have um, cleaned them and brushed them, uh, then it takes 15 days to soak them in lemon and various other herbal extractions so you have to soak them for 15 days in lemon and depending on what shade of gold you want and all sorts of stuff a different other ingredients um and it turns gold it turns this bright gold all the way to maybe like a copper um and it never fades it's just like always a metallic gold and even traditional like old school ones like ancient ones are still gold the only problem with this oh like to this day yeah they don't have a lot left because this cloth um obviously it's like a natural fiber it's very fine um and attracts moths so unless that it was like incredibly well cared for there's just a good chance that like most of it is is destroyed or damaged but the stuff that they do have that's historical is still gold it's still bright it looks brand new um, wow. Because it's not actually Jesus. gold. There's so it's way actual is all hell. Uh, that makes sense. Mm. So I've just seen, like, while Grace has been talking, I've just looked up the Wikipedia page and to get a brief overview and maybe some pictures. But I can't ignore the fact that it says here, it's so fine. It was said that a pair of women's gloves made from the fabric could fit into half a walnut shell and a pair mm-hmm. of stockings fits into a snuff box. Yeah, so you could get a pair of gloves into a walnut shell. And then a pair of stockings wow. into a snuff box. That is so little space. That is such a fine fabric. Mm. 
Um, so basically wow. the, the history behind this is the fabric is actually mentioned in the Rosetta Stone as something that was used by priests and they were not happy about the fact that it was so heavily taxed. Uh, it has been suggested a couple of times um, throughout the years that this is the fabric that they were referring to as like the golden fleece um, because it was, you know, a knitted fabric that was bright gold. Um, some oh. people disagree. Some people are like, oh, it's like all just a fable. There was no actual like real life basis on this. And other people are saying, yeah, this could be it. Either way, it's a fun idea. Um, in Rome, only the ruling class were allowed to wear it, um, and it was a very popular fabric for cloaks. Like, could you imagine being some, like, Roman ruling dude, and you rock up to, to Parliament, and you're like, look at my golden coat, guys. Yeah, I mean, it's and like the old, the world's oldest flex, yeah. right? To show up in sea silk. Mm-hmm. But also, think about the aesthetic of such a fine fabric as a cloak. Mm -hmm. Oh, boy. I mean, I'm yeah. into it. Ooh, I want one now. That would be comfy as hell. Yeah, um, seriously. In 9th century Persia, um, there are records that show that you could purchase a sea silk robe for 1,000 gold pieces. Jinkies. That sounds expensive. Yeah, I imagine in 9th century Persia, that was a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd say so. Mm. I'd say um, I'd, I'd wait during ninth century Persia. That could probably buy a house. Yeah, Just um, guess. and apparently in China it was referred to as mermaid silk, which I just thought was sweet. Mm. Oh, I like that more, honestly. Mm. Yeah. So basically. There's only a small group of women left who know how to weave it because it was always passed down from like through the female side of the family it was very much like a family business and traditionally that was sort of how the women made their money and supported their families and were able to like you know have comfortable lives so it was very closely guarded because they were like okay well this is our business and we don't want to jeopardize that um but since it's become rarer and rarer, it's gotten to the point where they're saying that it's not a business, it's an art now, and it's like historical, um, what you call it? <sighs> Basically, it's like a historical reenactment, and it's like a, it's a preservation. So they don't sell it anymore, they only ever give it away as gifts, um, because it's so hard to collect, you can't make these big pieces anymore. Um, so often it's given, if you show up and you ask about it, and you're like a... Uh, a Mediterranean woman, you can get one gifted to you as a wedding present or like a pregnancy present, I guess, um, because the sea silk is supposed to bring uh, good for good fortune and fertility. So it's seen as like a good luck charm and a blessing on your wedding. Um, Do they gift smaller sized pieces at this point now? To make up for the fact that they don't have as much? Yeah, so basically, um, if they're gifting it to people, it is generally a woven bracelet. Or if you bring your child's christening gown, they'll embroider designs into the dress for you. Um, that way they don't have to weave these huge amounts. They just like either make it into a thread that they can sew into stuff, or they only weave it into little bracelets. Um, I think... They still do quite small pieces, um, but they're always very little woven, um, like almost like handkerchief size sort of things. And that's 
almost entirely put into a museum that the locals help set up um, because obviously this is such an integral part to a lot of it's so like especially there's one uh, there's one island called Sant Antio um, but yeah basically because this is like the main island that was made on this is where most of the women are still making it are um, the local community came together and helped them set up like a little museum where basically they have a workshop where they you know weave and show the public how it's made and they also have some of the bigger pieces on display to show you what they look like in 2015 a Japanese businessman came to the museum and offered the women $2.9 million for an 18 centimeter square weaving. And they said, no, thank you. Wow. Yeah. Now, I mean, that takes some serious integrity. Yeah. Um, it was really sweet. Yeah, I talked about this before recording, but one of the women was um, interviewed for the BBC um, and her quote was, um, before it was emperors who wore sea silk, now it is young women and newlywed couples. I weave for outcasts, the poor, the people in need. Um, which I thought was really sweet. Aww. Yeah, I really like mm. that sentiment. That's really lovely. Yeah. So I just thought this was really interesting because it's, it's such a specific skill that you can only practice in one specific section of the world and it's still holding on since you know ninth century persia yeah i mean it's ancient Mm. that's pretty incredible Uh, imagine how many different artisan crafts especially ones easier to maintain than this will have come and gone in that time Mm. oh yeah yeah i mean the yeah it's ridiculous that we managed to keep that of all things yeah um, especially for stuff but it's like impressive. it is impressive, um, especially for stuff like this, where like the the technique isn't the problem necessarily. It's the materials that you're weaving. Um, there's another one that I looked into bringing this week that I didn't find too much on. It was called Shatouche, which is um, a, a Persian fa- a Persian word for king of fine wools, and it's a shawl that's made um, with the like hair of a tibetan goat sorry tibetan antelope in Kashmir, and it is so fine that you can get a full like women's shawl and you can pull it through a wedding ring just like a whole whole shawl you can pull through a ring um and the only reason they don't make it anymore is because those antelopes are so incredibly endangered yeah i imagine that one's a lot harder to get yeah, that one seems like that's going to be worse on the animal too, to procure. Yeah, well, you'd think so. You can just, like, shave them, I guess, but I guess they didn't just shave them. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I mean, that's fair. I guess it doesn't have to be worse on the animal necessarily. I just figured it definitely was. Yeah, well, the research I did, because yeah. I didn't do a huge amount, because there wasn't a lot out there. Um, it seemed to be back, like, traditionally, um, it was something that they would hunt for, like, food and pelts and skin and, like, fur and stuff. And it was just this one particular part of the animal that they'd use to weave um, into these fancy shawls. Oh, okay. So that makes sense. Mm-mm. So they used, the, they used the whole animal and, like, killing the, killing the animal was, like, an important and integral part of their life. Um, it just can't be anymore because it's 
not really around too much. Because yeah. it's not sustainable. Mm. Um, but yeah, that's all I huh. had was wow. this this fun sea silk, this um, weird natural gold. Okay, um, so I am now going to talk, I suppose. Uh, and so what I was looking more into was I wanted to get a bit away from like the practical kind of side of it. And I wanted to look more at the like social workings of it, which I guess is of no surprise to anyone that's listened to even a moment of this podcast. <laughs> um, but so at first I was looking at, um, I was looking cause I found some reference of it somewhere. Uh, was it, was it one of you that was telling me about the idea of cloth as currency or did i just find that i don't remember i think you just found that huh weird i don't remember how i came across this regardless um there was a for for many many years in uh quite a bit of africa but i think specifically in west africa especially kind of sub-sahara i believe uh for a long time cloth was used actually as currency um so it was kind of contentious for a long time as to whether or not it actually counted as currency. And there are a few reasons for that beyond the racism of it all. Um, and one of the big reasons for that is that there were lots of other currencies in use at the time. Like they had gold and they had silver dollars and they had cowrie shells at one point. Um, they had, I think, they had guineas before guineas went out of fashion. And even after guineas went out of fashion... Because uh, there was this weird thing with currency, as a side note, where a lot of the time when old currencies, like, died out, because I guess they became too expensive to actually manufacture, they would then just reduce it to, like, an agreeable, this is what it was set at when we still liked using it. So it's like, say, like, three silver dollars would get you a shirt, for instance. And then as mm. that inflates and silver dollars become useless... They then are just like, well, what if we just use silver dollars as, like, a metric and we'll say that one shirt is three silver dollars and then we can just use that as, like, you use that as, like, a theoretical Rosetta Stone kind of thing? It's very strange. (laughs) Yeah, it's, like, it's not an actual currency. You can't trade in it. You couldn't trade in guineas for a very long time after they were still talked about. You couldn't trade in silver dollars for a really long time. They would just use it as, like, a benchmark, just a theoretical benchmark. So this is, like, pinning the stock market to the price of gold. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, kind of. Except you would pin (laughs) the price of silver dollars to the price of anything you could remember what silver dollars were good for. (laughs) Yeah. Like it was it wasn't even it wasn't even like that speculative. It was just when silver dollars were really good, what was what were they worth? Uh about a shirt for three. Let's go with that. Let's go um, with that. So currency was very point being, currency was very fluid for a very long time. Uh, there wasn't a lot of standardization going on. And the cloth currency is a really good example of that. So what would happen hmm. is different regions would have their own, like, set widths, usually. Usually the length was about the same. But the the length was, I think, just as long as, like, a thread of the native cotton that they were using. But the... Just as long... Just, like, the length of, like, the... That they would usually spin it to. But the width would then be, like, standardized per region. And then as you would go about your business, as you would, like, trade with people, you would... 
uh, have like set amounts the like one strip of cloth of this width and this length oh sorry no I'm wrong they didn't set the length they had a standard width and then the length was the value that was the thing so you would have um, to standardize the length a little bit more they would say that the amount that you would use to make a traditional headscarf was a pretty typical uh, like a metric that you would set things by um, but sometimes it would just be like it would just be however much of the cloth a thing was worth so if you wanted to buy I don't know like a week's worth of food for instance that would just be like whatever length was decided it was kind of vague at times um, does this make any sense yeah yeah it was it was less about um, like a dis uh, like a standard price for our objects and more like this is what it has been worth and this is what it is equivalent to in terms of like value yeah yeah okay cool yeah so because and i think the most important distinction here is it relies on this concept of use value rather than exchange value and really specifically on labor value as well so the way that you would judge how valuable a piece of cloth was was um and that's why headscarves for instance were a metric is you would base it on essentially the utility of that piece of cloth it became a really stable currency because everyone needs cloth for something and you're never going to have it inflate because eventually cloth deteriorates so you can't keep trading it forever eventually you have to turn it into something or you're wasting your investment in the cloth you know Mm. um so it would have to stop being traded eventually and people were always going to be making it because people were always going to be making things out of it. So there was a consistent supply and there was a consistent like withdrawal from the system. So for a really long time, these like standard widths and like a headscarf's length could be a pretty standard price for X amount of certain goods. And you could, even though the... Obviously, the values would change from region to region as the, like, set measurements changed. Within that region, it would be really consistent and was for a really long time. Like, our areas, mm. our area does it based on the amount you need for a headscarf. And that headscarf is worth, say, I don't know, a kilo of grain, for instance. Um, and then that would be consistent for a really long time. In fact, grain was another example. Grain and shells, I think, ca- uh, cowrie shells were introduced by colonial powers. But grain and... Oh, beets were the other one. Were the two main supplements. Because also you get down to a certain level. And once you cut a cloth short enough, it's not useful anymore. It's just thread. Mm. So when you would get to increments that were too small when you were dealing with like really small amounts of uh, goods that you were trading for, you would then use, instead of cents, you would use like grain or beads or something like that. Something that's equally useful. So, so this does really feel like it's it's notes and coins, but it's cloth and beads. Yeah, it's really interesting because it's almost, it's like standardized bartering mm. more than anything else. Yeah. It's, um, it's, and, it, oh, sorry. No, say what you were going to say. I was going to say, it's really interesting, and I have no idea about whether this reflects on this culture, but, and the idea of, like, a traditional headscarf being, like, a standard and beads being, like, 
also kind of a standard in terms of also being important like cultural dresses i know a lot of the time like the cultural importance of outfits for women was often reflected on their sort of for sale price so their husband could show off their wealth but also because it gave women um essentially like they couldn't have their own money but if you had difficult times you could sell the wedding jewelry you got you know yeah and it was a very kind of similar thing it was that idea of having this like practical thing you could keep on your person that you could be using in your day-to-day life and then use if you needed Mm. to for trade um because people would also trade like pieces of clothing and stuff as well because the cloth was just as valuable you just had to unpick it and stitch it back up into something else Mm. um it's not very difficult to change and it was a really it was really hard because it was forced out um of the economy by pretty much exclusively by colonial powers um and they had to fight really really hard to do it um it got to a point where i think the french government had to say that they would accept taxes in indigenous cloth currency so that people would give them all of the currency. Oh, sorry, it was Britain, actually. It was Britain said it. Um, of course it was Britain. So they would give them all the currency so they could take it out of circulation. Um, and uh, the article I was reading about it made, made now, an interesting Now, that's a story note. hook. I'm sorry, but that's that's a story hook. Well, the... The, the really fun thing is that the article I was reading about it said that, completely coincidentally, uh, the British colonial warehouse uh, expenses went up that year because they had to store all of this cloth. So much It's cloth. so much bigger. Yeah. And that, oh, was, and that was kind of the... That kind of became the big problem with it, is as soon as you tried to deal with it in a way that wasn't this, like, day-to-day use, like, utility exchange... Um, you ran into a lot of problems because you could conceivably keep like a big roll of fabric on you as your, um, essentially as your money. But it got to a point where some traders, for instance, would try to hoard the stuff and ended up with like 60,000 pounds worth of cloth that nobody wanted. Yeah. Because they were in an area where it was being made in massive volumes. I also imagine like the British government couldn't even sell this for a profit because I have a feeling back in ye old Britain, traditional like African fabric wasn't the hip look of the day. You'd be surprised, actually. Really? Um, yeah, I'd say it yeah, would likely be a status symbol. I suppose so. They were yeah. really into that sort of, like, showing off their racist, exotic uh, <laughs> shit their husband brought home. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, almost definitely. It's really interesting. They had some, some pretty strange and often even conflicting views Mm. towards um traditional african textiles and stuff in the especially in the oh the i can't remember the historical word for it but the countries that were being that were doing the colonizing in like the actual homeland of the colonizers um they had these really like because, yeah, on the, on the one hand, they tried to phase it out, right? They tried mm. to completely take it out of circulation. Um, and they also tried to do that in terms of the actual textile trade itself. 
Um, because originally this cloth, because it was used both as clothing and currency, kind of spread all around Africa. Um, you would use it less to trade with around the areas that it was made, but as you went further up north, you would use it more and more because it was less common. Because I think the, um, the cotton itself grows better towards like south, the like south, southern part of West Africa. Um, but as the colonial powers came in, they were like, well, okay, not only do we want you to use our money, because then we can in kind of force our culture upon you, we also want to make sure that you're only giving us your money. So they would and this is in the middle of the slave trade, by the way. So these are so these are oh, these God. are European fabrics largely being made by slaves. By slaves from Africa. Um, they would get them to create these, they would create these fabrics and kind of during the industrial revolution, as they managed to create them like on mass, they started trying to sell them in Africa again to the people that were, that, that just lived there. Um, and at first, I can't see this possibly going wrong. Well, it's really interesting. So at first it looks like, I tell a lie. At first, it did look like it was working. They were incredibly cheap um, because they were so mass-produced and they were sent over in such bulk. But it got to a point where, especially in um, in the region of West Africa, people were... Because so many fabrics were made there, people started to get quite specific about the things that they would buy. I mean, as I guess they always had been. But um, when... When um, Britain started to, like, drop the quality of their fabrics and France started to up their price because they were like, oh, we can sell it for more now, people stopped buying European fabric because, like, they had this method of testing the quality of the fabric. Um, they, you would take the material and you would put it up to your lips. You would, like, moisten your lips and you would put it up to your lips. Um, and that would test both if the dye stayed and it would... and uh, people would say that if it tasted salty, it was of, like, lower quality. Um, that was, like, one of the metrics they used. And so, because they had, like, these... And that was just, like, one of the methods they used to test it. Because they started developing all these methods to test the quality of fabrics and stuff that were mass-produced, um, they started being able to... And as they started to become kind of more common and indigenous fabrics became less common, people started to be a little bit more discerning. And people stopped buying European fabrics because as soon as people start uh, people were given the option of buying quality material they wouldn't buy the British stuff because it sucked they wouldn't buy the French stuff because it was tariffed to shit and so they would start making it again like it just started popping up in marketplaces and it just again. revived the uh, industry we- yeah. yeah looms started reappearing in people's houses and stuff like things this industry that in the i think 1870s the colonial power the colonial governments were talk were sending back chorus sending correspondence back and forth between their like uh mainland governments saying oh we're gonna wipe it out we're gonna wipe out the indigenous textile trade within the next few years and then within a decade because they cut all their quality controls um it's it back. all died off and it wasn't yeah, and it wasn't until after the um, after the kind of middle class in England started demanding more and more quality fabrics, um, it the manufacturers a few years later started to realise that that was probably the problem in Africa as well, 
And so there was this slow transition uh, after they had completely tried to wipe it out of then going back and re-engaging with African culture and trying to work out what materials would sell. And so they had to institute quality control in their mills. They had to start looking to fabric, uh, to patterning motifs that actually made sense to the people that lived there, things that they actually wanted to wear. And they started to work out that, oh, obviously people are just human beings. Everyone just wants shit they like. And they started having mm. to, like, pay attention to, like, specific fashion trends in specific regions. <laughs> they had to start, like, designing their patterns based off of traditional patterning. I mean, and you can see there's evidence of it. Mm. Um, I found a good article that has uh, some comparison photos of uh, fabrics that were made kind of after the 1920s. Uh, by European manufacturers and fabrics that were made traditionally by um, indigenous African weavers. Um, and they straight up had to, like, copy, essentially, what was, what they were making in the region because it was the only way anyone would buy it. And it was this interesting kind of deconstruction of this cultural narrative that they'd been trying to build, this idea that, like, we know what people want and that we can, like, enforce our values on people. Mm. And they had to kind of break that down as they, as this, uh, as this industry, as this market became so independent um, in the sorts of things that people were wanting. Um, they had to, like, break down all of those narratives that they had about the people that lived there and the culture that they had. It went from being, like... Oh yeah, people in Africa just like gaudy colors. That's all they want. They just want to show off to being like, okay, so we were looking and in this specific region, they really love these repeating motifs and they like like square shapes and arc shapes. So how do we incorporate that into what we're doing? So it's just like this weird transition as they kind it, of have to... It's almost in at as least if one industry. <laughs> yeah, they had to like... The colonial powers had to almost decolonize an industry, I, at least aesthetically, <laughs> so that they could do anything with it. I really love the idea of them rocking up and being like, we know exactly what you need. Everyone going, that's ugly as hell, dude. That sucks. See you later. My mum makes something better <laughs> yeah. than you. Yeah, how bad does your clothing have to be if you have people under, like, restrictive martial law and they'd still rather n ignore your <laughs> ignore your clothing and make their own? <laughs> like, even after, you've sp after the people that have guns in their streets have spent centuries trying to stop them, they're still like, fuck it, it's worth it. This is ugly as hell. <laughs> mm. uh, I'll die, but I'll do it looking hot as hell. Yeah, and they had to respond. They had to listen. Mm. And then it got to a point where they just had to deal with the fact that, like, the African textile trade just came back up. Because there was nothing they could do at that point. That's wild. That is so good. Yeah. Yeah, and and that's still a massive thing to this day. Like, it's it's been massively revitalized. It never went away again. Um, they're less common and they're obviously more expensive because a lot of them are still made with like traditional practices and so they take a lot of time um, which was also a big part of the why, why they were consistently valuable to begin with was that the time that it took the, the amount of labour that it took just to create these things made them inherently very valuable um, 
So they're yeah, they're still more expensive in some places, but yeah, the um the like traditional African textile trade is back up and going. That is really cool. Thank you for that. Yeah, of course. I don't know. I just think it's really interesting the effect it's had on so many cultures. I mean, like, uh, like I was saying to Tully before we started recording, the Silk Road, which was initially just to trade silk, like it branched out later mm. on, but it was just to trade silk at first, um, is why Aleppo exists, which is the, I believe, it was one of the biggest cities in Syria, and it's the oldest city that's had a continuous population on the which planet is nuts. of Earth. Mm. Yeah. And it only exists because of textile trade. It's crazy. Perfect. Well, in that case, we might take a quick break and then we'll be back in a hot sec to talk a little bit about how you can bring this into your games, give you some ideas. Huzzah! We're back. So we were chatting, as we as we are want to do, and we've come up with yep, a little a textile quest. Uh, no, I can't think of a pun. Let's move on. Quest style. So, ooh, that yeah, yeah. Let's go with that. Um, so the quest style <laughs> we've come up with is so imagine the party has found themselves in an area that's under some kind of some kind of like oppressive rule so either colonial rule uh empirical rule uh martial law something along those lines and whatever power is in play is like they were trying to do in uh west africa for example trying to get rid of the traditional ways of making textiles in order to kind of solidify their hold both over the culture and over the economy of the region because i mean it's a it's always an important part of both. So after some failed attempts to get things to take off in the local market, they decide to just make it legal. Uh, and so whether it be, I don't know, some kind of plant fiber that's normally used, if it's like a sea silk thing, maybe they close the ports or something, but for whatever, but however they do it, they manage to stop the supply of whatever material is used to make the local fabrics. And so everyone is forced to deal with the shitty, worse fabrics that are forced upon them. And so the party, after, I don't know, maybe a conversation with someone in the market, maybe a, a, a heart-to-heart a heart with a local weaver woman, something along those lines, decides, screw it, we're going to fix things. And so maybe they can secure a different supply. Maybe they overthrow the regime. Whatever it is they choose Maybe to they do, establish a black food. market. Maybe they establish a black market. Yeah, there's all sorts of things. And then you just kind of... You're just giving the party a very human problem. Uh, just someone's trying to mess with the way we live. Someone's trying to change our culture to be like theirs. And we just need someone to help us protect it. Mm. Or we need yeah. help... Maybe that's a poor way to phrase it. We need mm. we need resources, I suppose, to yeah. to fight against it because it's it's difficult and it's important, I think, to stress this element of it. It can be 
really difficult if you're under such like an oppressive regime to get the resources that you need to fight back against it. So it even could just be as much as the party getting some supplies into the city so that a like grassroots kind of local movement can do something about it. Like whatever it is to help it out. I, but I think it's important to stress that it's not a lack of ability. It's like a forced lack of resources, mm. which is a much harder yeah. thing to deal with. Yeah. Because um, there's a sensitivity that you have to employ when you're dealing with something like that beyond just like br- the brute force of fixing with air quotes, the problem. Mm. Yeah, um, this is this is a somebody on the outside of the gates helping the people inside. It's not a white savior ride in and fix everything for them. Yeah, because um, I mean, it also depends on like if you end up working with your DM. But if like one of your characters is like the daughter or son of a local weaver, and it's like your family history too, um, then it's like you feel like you have to carry on your family tradition, and you can't. So maybe something like that, where it's exactly. not just personal to your culture, but personal to a character. That's true. That's true. They could. It could be something that, that members of the party have had to deal with directly. Like it might not be a thing about cultural sensitivity. It might be a thing about protecting your own culture. That's true. Yeah. But um, yeah, fun little one that brings in some some larger cultural aspects for something that, at first glance, could appear very basic. Yeah, and so that just, yeah, it's an interesting way to start a conversation. It's an interesting way to start a quest. Uh, Let us know if you do anything with it. Yeah. And uh, I think that's us for the the fortnight. Thank you so much for sticking through uh, this one. We're working out some audio issues, so we don't know what this will sound like. Um, But you've made it all the way through to the (laughs) end, so we love you deeply. Yeah, I really hope that it's, like, listenable in mm. the way that it syncs up. That's going to be interesting. Stay safe also, you know? Ooh. Stay yeah, safe, stay away from people. Came out, um, yeah, make sure you're washing your hands, you're staying away from gatherings and stuff, depending on where you are in the world. Just be careful. Just think, though, all of this, like, uh, social isolation or whatever they're calling it um, gives you an excuse to stay at home and listen to every podcast that you've missed out on the last couple of months because I know I have quite a long list of episodes that I have missed yeah mm. yeah perfect time for to, to binge our show if this is your first yes. episode <laughs> yeah go back to the beginning have a look listen from uh, all the way back from sewers <laughs> Ooh, yeah. you... <laughs> well, well, a while ago now yeah this um, podcast is actually older than I am so that's true. That's just mm. a fact. Mm-hmm. I didn't do anything before um, I started the Thank you everyone show, for listening. Actually. Thank you everybody for listening. Um, we will see you next week. If you want to get in next fortnight, uh, if you want to get in contact, feel free to catch us again on our socials at Dungeon Deep Dive or email us at deepdivetnc at gmail.com. And uh, stay safe. Uh, enjoy the quarantine or whatever you can of it. We hope it hasn't taken too much of a toll on you. And um, we'll see you on the other side. Bye.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.